Good evening, everyone. Evening, James. Lovely to see you. Hey. So, my name's Matt. It's a great privilege for me to wrap up this three-part series tonight that we've been looking at, which has been called, How About Some Good News for a Change? And uh, starting off with Julie two weeks ago, she preached on a massive topic of a good purpose. And she kicked off by saying, in a world where so much seems to be going wrong, can we believe that there is a God working for the good? And we said, absolutely. We looked at the life of Joseph, and amazingly, this man's life, you could say at the end of it, what you guys meant for evil against me, God meant for good. Incredible. And last week, Joey preached so well on the topic of a good God, and we, he unpacked uh, from the same chapter we're going to look at tonight, so this parable of the prodigal son, and we saw how amazingly kind and scandalously merciful this father is towards the Skabanga son. And amazingly, it's a reflection, it's a true story of what this father in heaven is like. And I want to say, are you wondering if God is personally connected to your life and interested? Absolutely. That father was looking for that son. He was so in tune. This God that we proclaim as Christians, he's a good God. And my... My assignment tonight is to unpack the third and final part, which this good God intends us to have a good life, the side of the grave. But it's a life that's unexpected in terms of what makes it good. And so I hope that you're ready tonight to hear some awesome words of Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, you can swipe there on your device. And uh, the purpose of tonight is to look at in a time when everything, the world, mankind has put his or her confidence in, is being shaken. What really determines a good life? What really matters? What does this all mean? And friends, never before, certainly in my short lifetime, have I seen the world like this before where man's wealth is being shaken, this global economic recession and trade wars, our security is being shaken through crime and corruption on a global scale, the international tensions between East and West, even our future. I, I wonder how you read these ecological reports about our future. I wonder the kind of world Elijah and Sarah, my, my kids are going to grow up in, if they're ever, ever going to see a living rhino. If they're ever going to see certain animals that I got to watch and maybe even in the, in the natural wild. I wonder, what on earth is the future going to look like after the evidence we're seeing in what we are doing to the world we live in? And I say to you today, anybody who is a thinking person here tonight must be asking big questions. Where is this world going? Where are we going to run? And as Christians, we need to be asking ourselves, if we believe in a God who's always at work, and we do, we must be asking ourselves, what is God doing in the world today? Because he's at work. He's at work in this time of history. And this is really a pressing question, and a question which the church can be increasingly relevant in terms of her clarion call and saying, this is why these things are happening. Let me help you understand. And so tonight, I want us to look at what the secret 
to a good life really is. You know, one of the things Hollywood loves to glamorize is you watch those films and at the end, you know, it was a good life. And my heart for us tonight is to hear the words of Jesus. At the end of your life, you can look back at your life and say, that was really good. That was well lived. It really mattered. And the story we're going to look at tonight is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And there's some important things I want you to note before I start to read it. These are not the words of a philosopher. No man, created man, has a right to speak like Jesus did. There is only one man who is qualified to talk like this. This is Jesus, the man who is the Son of God come in the flesh, who descended and defeated the hordes of hell and rose three days later in the resurrection. My friend, it's a fact of history. I challenge you to go and research it yourself. This Jesus Christ, if there was any man to speak with authority on this parable and the spiritual reality that it represents, it's him. And it's designed to be a parable that gets us to think. And might I just quickly say to you tonight, the mark of good preaching is not if the guy or girl makes you laugh. It's nice. The mark of good preaching is not to entertain you so you leave feeling good. The mark of good preaching, like Jesus is, is to get you to think. To get you to evaluate your life, to get you to see God in the way he is and what that means for you. And this is what Jesus is doing. And he's addressing the toughest crowd possible of the day. They're called Pharisees. These guys were tough crowds. And these Pharisees, oh boy, who would have thought after Joe's unpacking this glorious parable of the prodigal son, wouldn't you be happy if you were listening to Jesus talking about that kind of God, a God who's like a father who comes and welcomes you home after the pigsty experience, who's so faithful and generous and merciful and kind. If that was you in Jesus' day, wouldn't you be going, that's the kind of God I would like to follow? Not these guys. In Luke chapter 16, just a few verses before Jesus tells his story, do you know what these Pharisees did to Jesus? They ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. And so Jesus is gunning for hearts, and he's gunning for hard hearts. (laughs) Hence the story. And he says, you know what your problem is, Pharisees? I just want to unpack it for you tonight. Is that you think that what is on the outside is so important. That's what he says, is you justify yourself before men. In other words, your problem, Pharisees, is what you think is so esteemed amongst men is esteemed by God. And Jesus says, oh, that's your problem. Because don't you know that God knows the heart? And so if anybody here, nobody knows my heart. I might look so wonderful outside. I might be raising my hands in worship. You don't know a single thought of my heart. You don't know the single inclination of my heart. There is only one person in the universe who knows what you really like inside, and that's God. And he says, and he uses strong language. The Greek is the strongest word possible. He says, don't you know, Pharisees, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He says, guys, you got to get your thinking straight because what you think is so important to God is nothing to him. What you think is the measure of a man and his worth in this world, it is nothing when you stand before God. And so that's the point of this parable. Let's read it together. From verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Mm, tasty. And it says, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died also and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Oh, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now remember, I said Jesus is using two extremes here. The one character is this uber rich guy, right? And he is filthy rich. He had a gate. If you had a gate in ancient Israel, you had something. It means you had a wall, a wall in front of your house. He was really someone important. He had a gate. And he had power and status. Whenever you hear the, the color purple, it was what those who had rank and honor had. He had such power. And he had the crib to prove it. And amazingly, this guy, he had the education and a, and a good job, plenty of comfortable possessions and was concerned for his health and well-being. That's the fine linen, everything had to feel so good. And he was a foodie. He loved food. He dined sumptuously every day. And whenever there's good food, there's a lot of people generally, right? And this guy, he is socially so up there. And I had to smile to myself, you know, 2,000 years later, is man and woman any different? What do we see? Beautiful food by Nigella Lawson on DSTV. How to have, be ripped and have a perfectly healthy life. How to have a beautiful home decor. How, these things that were so important to this rich man, it hasn't changed 2,000 years later. We're still driven by the same appetites. Isn't that funny? And then he contrasts, he says, there's a guy who's called Lazarus. And this guy, he's in a terrible financial situation. And nobody here knows what it's like until you're in the position when you don't have a single cent and you have to go knocking on your relatives, your friend's door because you don't know how you're going to make it till the end of the month. It is the most humbling place. This guy was reduced to begging. He had terrible health. He had oozing sores that would bleed, and these stray dogs would come and lick it. He was so weak, he couldn't get the dogs off. And he had to be carried. He couldn't even walk to this front man's gate. It says he had to be dropped off by some kind people and picked up at the end of the day. He had no family. We clearly know that. He was incredibly hungry. He picked through the dustbin of the rich man. 
He had no employment because of his health. He had no education to speak of, no social connections. I ask you tonight, who's the loser in the story? Who would you call a loser in life? It's Lazarus, not so? And I thought to myself, if it was me looking at Lazarus walking past the rich man's gate, what would I say? You know, my, my first horrific, awful, sinful inclination is to say, oh, look what you, how did you get here? What was, it was your fault. Drags. Poor decisions around schooling. Rebellious against your parents. Man, we are so quick to point to blame. Jesus says this guy had got nothing in his life to point out the fact that he deserved the situation. But despite all this, Lazarus does have something that the rich man does not. I hope you picked it up. Is that this poor man, he loved the Lord. He had a relationship with the God of the Bible. And sometimes scripture is profound by what it does not say. And as I was thinking about this man, I want to point out to you tonight, not once, not once does Jesus mention he called out in bitterness, in vindictiveness, in manipulation. There is something about this man that is tremendous. He's sitting in front of this gate of this rich man and he's entrusting himself to God. Unwavering in his faith. In the God of the Bible, that, my friend, is something phenomenal. Now, the irony of this story is, and I hope you pick it up too, the irony is, despite this great man's wealth and despite this poor man's poverty, they both die. Isn't that interesting? Here's this guy with his purple robe. Buried in his coffin. And that's the first thing you got to see, that this rich man's wealth and power and status could do nothing for him. Both die. The second irony is this, is the mode of these men's death. I hope you picked it up. Lazarus dies. Who comes and fetches him? These angelic beings, this welcoming party sent by God saying, Lazarus, we're coming to fetch you, to come and be in the presence of God, to get you to heaven. And I can imagine what Lazarus is going, wow, angels, I must really be hallucinating. I must seriously be hungry. They must be coming for somebody else. And they say, Lazarus, we're coming for you. I just think about that for a moment. A man that was never noticed by anybody gets directed by the God of heaven to send these glorious angelic beings to fetch this man that nobody looked at, nobody cared for, nobody gave the time of day. Oh, but when he enters into glory, the God of heaven sends angels to fetch him. Wow. What a welcoming party. Or how about this? What was the state of the rich man? Rather bleak. No one. Instead of comfort, anguish. Instead of a full belly, a gnawing pain caused by a terrified conscience before a God that was holding him to account for what he did in the flesh. These words are mighty. Only Jesus could say them. What role reversals in this story. And how different their destinations after death. Lazarus goes to be in heaven, in the presence of God. That's Abraham's bosom or side. It's all the same word, paradise. You can, the rich man goes to Hades. And for the theology uh, buffs here, that just means it's the place of the unbeliever before judgment day. Hell comes after judgment day. Gehenna, Hades. 
and they are permanent. Luke 16, verse 26, Abraham says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Wow. My next point is I want to point out, what are the warnings and wisdom of Jesus' teaching? The first is this. And I hope you listen to me carefully tonight, young and old, doesn't matter where you are, is the warning of this parable is, is that we are not to live as human beings as though we had no souls. The greatest mistake you can make, youth, young adult, I feel like there's two, and whoever's in between, no, no, not in between, who's ever after that, hey, is the greatest mistake you can make tonight. And if you're joining us for the first night of this series, I want you to let this sink into your life. It is a powerful statement that Jesus is making. Don't live as though you had no soul. You do. Because what happened with this man, this rich man was careless. The very thing that was eternal, his soul, is the very thing he forgets about. Because he is so attentive to his body you know, these things that he had were not bad. Wealth, if you're wealthy tonight, praise God for it. Abraham calls them good things. If you have status and power, if you have ability to bring change, if you are blessed with great social connections or great, like, elder culinary gifts, praise God, you've received good things. But the problem is this. If you let those things become the preoccupation of your life so that you forget you have a soul, my friend, you will regret it for eternity. The greatest gift God has given you under Christ is he's given you a soul. The giver of life has planted in you an eternal soul with an eternal destiny. It is the highest form of gift. It's what separates you from the little bunny rabbit and the dog and all those things that we think are so cute. My friends, the dignity of the human race is that they have the implanted divine soul with the fingerprint of God on it. And as a pastor, I want to say, I might be young, but death is a common conversation that comes across my path. And I've seen some weird things. I've seen the moment that soul departs from the body, that body's dead. I'm tempted to tell you a story tonight. I won't tell you her name. But her mother was dying. And as her, as her mother was dying, she could see that her soul had left her body. She died. She screamed out, no, don't leave me. And the soul came back into the body and the breathing started. And then she said, okay, you can go. And the soul was released. And I say to you tonight, be careful of being so preoccupied by what we can see. When Jesus is saying the story, and it's echoed in Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, he says, for these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. My friend, you have a soul and you have to pay attention to it. The second warning is this, is to live as though our actions in this life have got no repercussions in the next that's the danger. And Jesus says, for this man, 
He could remember everything that happened in his life. Abraham says, don't you remember, rich man? You experienced the good things in your life. And part of the anguish of the rich man was he could remember how poorly he used what God had entrusted him. And I say to you tonight, Jesus said, what shall it profit a man who gains, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The wisdom of this parable, before I move to my next point, is this. I hope you're starting to be forced to think about what really matters in this life. I hope Jesus through this parable is starting to almost arrest your thinking. Because you see, what he's talking about this, in this parable is what he's doing in the earth today. Why are all these shakings in the world happening? It is God helping us to see what is truly important and to get us to question our thinking. What is the measure and meaning of my life when my wealth is gone? When my health is gone? When my cultural standing is gone? When my world is shaken? What am I left with? What was it all for? What have I built my life upon? And it is God in His mercy helping us to see what the rich man didn't until he was too late. This current shaking is God being kind to us to show us what really matters. So then, how can I live a good life? Well, remember we said, the secret to living a good life is having the right view. We've got to have the right view, the right understanding, the right outlook on our life. And the first is this. If you want to live a good life, my friend, you have to live life in the light of eternity. You have to live as though there is an afterlife. And for the Christ follower, you have to live as though this is not home. This is merely an assignment. I'll say it again. You have to live as though this is not home. This is merely an assignment. Do you know what the great, the great offering of a good life is in Christ? Is a life of purpose. You know what everyone's asking in the world today? Outside of Jesus, what is this all for? Why am I here? I tell you, as a Christian, I have never had this question unanswered in my life because ultimately, my friend, we recognize that this life is an assignment from God and it is only a matter of time before we are called home. Wow. Every relationship matters. Every ounce of money you have matters. Every talent you have matters. Every day you have matters. Why? Because what we do in this life, it echoes into the next. We're living for a purpose and we want a well done. And what it will do for you is if you will start to live like this, it will give you real freedom. Let me tell you what freedom is not. Having vast amounts of money and not knowing where to put it. Having vast amounts of biochemicals pumping through your bloodstream, but knowing that it's not going to keep your body alive forever. Let me tell you, the, the, these things that the world gives, things give such freedom and security, it leads to bondage. When you start to live in the light of eternity, it starts to ply your fingers off the things that you can't keep. It makes you aim for what you know is going to last forever. Friends, today I ask you, are you living in the light of eternity? That's true freedom and purpose. 
The second is this, is, is we live unafraid of death. What is this world obsessed with? Dave has to face it every day in trying to keep the human body alive for as long as possible. Not so. Can I tell you, as a pharmacist, the most fascinating thing is who are those that buy the most supplements, the most vitamins, the most things that tell you that you're going to live a bit longer are your 70 and 80-year-olds. They don't want to die. Can I say today, Hebrews Chapter 2 tells us we are born into the slavery of fear of death. I want to say, as the Christ follower today, you have got nothing to fear in death. The worst thing that can even rob you of your body cannot destroy your soul. And I want to say, as the Christian, where the world has got no peace, holding on to life, running to other countries, running to other political systems, trying desperately to try and eke out the most of what they can in this life to delay the inevitable, I want to tell you what true freedom is and what a good life is, is to look at death and to say, I've got nothing to fear. Nothing. And I want to say, Christians, J.C. Rao was so right, this great bishop of the Victorian area, he says, our people die well. I've got a mom who is desperately sick. She might not be around for her young kids. I tell you, when we get to sit about talking about glory and going home, her face moves from weeping to this shining of realizing what death means for her, the release the release of this discomfort, the release of going home, of being with Jesus. And if her children come to faith, oh, Mal, she's not going to miss out on a single thing because she'll be with him for eternity. So I tell her, you live like your hope is in Jesus and you show them what it's like to have faith in the Son of God. You fear nothing. You show them what it's like to die well because death is the entry. It's not the exit into true life, my friend. This is the foyer. The banquet hall of heaven is waiting. We're not afraid to enter into it. In actual fact, if you grasp this teaching, like Paul, you'll be torn. You'll say, I want to go home. I can't wait. Oh, but I've got these people to look after and love. You'll be so torn. And that's, that is when you have grasped true freedom, my friend. Oh, wow. It is living with this absolute peace that death cannot touch you. The third thing of how do you live a good life, I want to say to you today, it is living this life remembering that it is not worth comparing to the next. You see what our trouble is today, and I will say the church is just as bad as the world, is we are looking, look, listen to me now, this is very important, is we are looking for heaven on earth. You're not going to get it. This world has got nothing on what is coming in the next. And I can explain it to you like this. It's a picture that, it's the best way I can think of it. This world is like a little tent. Any of you been camping here? It's like those old-fashioned tents where you have those two big poles, and you kind of have to, so those army tents, you know, those awful things that can kind of keep falling over. It's not the nice carbon fiber ones that you just release and it does everything for you. It's like that tent that you almost fear this thing falls on me, it's going to impale me and I'm going to go to Jesus sooner than I think. <laughs> and that's the picture of this world. And I want to say to you as Christians, don't misunderstand me here. We need to love this world. We are called to shepherd it. It's our mandate. Recycling, being responsible citizens, rallying behind, caring for God's creation. It is a mandate. And I say that humbly and in awe tonight as one that needs to grasp this in his life. But I want to say, so here we are, and the, every, the whole world is trying to prop this world up, and it's like this tent, and one's trying to get this pin te- tent peg, and this other one's trying to knock in this tent, trying to make these political solutions, trying to clear the, the plastic from the oceans and all these things, and, and this thing's kind of tottering and leaning over. But for the Christian, 
we look to the left of this tent and we see Buckingham Palace. And I ask you, where would you want to keep your stuff? In this little tent, let me tell you, one little breeze comes and blows it over and it falls to nothing. Where do you want to keep it? Where do you want to stay? Where do you want to store your stuff? In Buckingham Palace, not so. That is the difference between the glory of this world and the glory of the next. So, my final point tonight is this. I hope you've been following my train of thoughts. And my train of thought is this. Don't you notice at every point of living the good life, I'm talking about the Christ follower, the Christ follower, the Christ follower. My ultimate point is this. The good life is found in Jesus alone. The good life is found in Jesus alone. And this guy, this rich man, he goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I've got five other brothers. You've got to help me out here. You, they don't realize that this is the reality of what it's like after death. Abraham, please. I mean, he, this guy does not get it, even in hell, even in Hades. He's still ordering the guy around. I'm like, buddy, has nothing been instructed or taught in your life about what your true state is? He doesn't get it. He says, send Lazarus back from the dead. And the funny part is Jesus uses this word Lazarus because Lazarus, which was Jesus' best friend, did rise from the dead. And the Pharisees didn't believe him. In fact, they wanted to kill Lazarus along with Jesus. But the point is this. Is he says, go send my five brothers. Tell them that they won't land up in, in my state here and in my anguish. Tell them this is real. Send Lazarus back from the dead. And Abraham says, don't you know they have God's word? They have the scriptures. He talks about Moses and the prophet. And I'm going to talk about what Jesus said. They have the Old Testament. No, no. If you send Lazarus back from the dead, this phenomenon of someone coming back from the dead, they will repent and believe. Abraham says, no, they won't. If they don't believe God's word, there is no salvation. Can I say to you tonight, you are not saved by a phenomenon. You are saved by believing God's rock-solid word. And can I say to you what he means by the Old Testament? Can I just point out, we're in a bit of a crisis. Just push pause for those of you looking from the outside in. The church is in a crisis where some are saying we have to cut off the Old Testament in order to get the fullness of the new. What a load of baloney. Can I tell you why tonight? If you neglect your Old Testament, you do it at your peril. Youth, let me tell you, the wisest place to start to see the source of all of our trouble is the Old Testament. See, this is what you must believe tonight if you want to become a follower of Christ. You must believe that the God of glory made you. You are not a random collision of some random atoms. Who knows how they got there? I'm just pointing out that question. But I am saying to you that the God of glory, you must believe, has made you. You belong to him. You're accountable to him. Oh, wow. That just touches a nerve in our culture right there. The second is this, is that the source of all of mankind's problems, it's not some sort of genetic miscalculation. It's not some sort of imperfect world around us. The problem is the sickness called sin. It was devastating. It's called the fall. And all of our troubles and all of God's righteous judgment that we come under is because of sin. The Old Testament tells you that. Then the next thing that the Old Testament will tell you is mankind left to himself could do nothing to reach a standard that would lead to salvation. In actual fact, mankind left to themselves became so wicked, God had to wipe them out with a flood. The other thing the Old Testament will tell you is that even perfect religion, even this law of Moses where God, through the threats of fear and punishment, can give us all these standards and tick boxes to tick, it could not produce the standard of righteousness that God requires for salvation. 
Where do you see it in the Old Testament? In fact, what do you see in the Old Testament? Blood everywhere. Slaughter after slaughter after slaughter of animal after animal after animal. Blood spilled, blood spilled. So Israel could just get a bit closer to God. But because of the repetition of these sacrifices, oh, we know that none of them were perfect. Where are you going to find that Old Testament? In actual fact, the Old Testament tells you there's no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. And that there was going to come a day when God's perfect Passover lamb is going, was going to come and ransom the world from its sin. And this is where it comes. Can I point? It's the most glorious merging of Scripture. Just a few verses before this parable, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John. John the Baptist was the Old Testament's greatest finale act. He was the greatest prophet the world has ever seen. And when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb that comes to take away the sin of the world. The culmination of the Old Testament is towards this glorious moment where John fulfills his prophetic ministry by saying, He must increase, I must decrease, because the Lamb of God has come. Christ has come. The anointed, the deliverer has come. The Old Testament proclaims it, and John confirms it. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. No man, no man comes to the Father but through me. Friends, this Messiah didn't come for a throne. He came for a bloody cross. And his veins were slit open and his blood spilt out for your and mine forgiveness. And the Old Testament will tell you this, that although that Passover blood was available to anybody in Egypt or Israel, whatever nation there was, the blood was available. And it's the same with Jesus. The, his blood is available to the world, but it is only those that run under it and shelter under it and says, this is my only hope to escape the judgment that is passing over. Friends, the Old Testament tells you, unless you hide under this blood, you have no hope. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no rescue from death. You will experience what this rich man felt in all of its fullness. It is only those who hide under the blood of the Passover land that experience escape. This Old Testament is mighty. You must believe this in order to be saved. Because it points to Christ. So I ask you tonight, we're about to take this cup and this bread, the greatest symbol of what the church proclaims. I ask you today, have you sheltered under the blood of Jesus? Have you come and seen your sin? Have you realized that that is the only place of refuge? That is the only place of rescue? There is nothing in yourself. God's not interested in what other men see. He's not interested in your good works, what men see. Those things are an abomination to God, Jesus says. They mean nothing when you stand before God. Oh, what, what happens before God? What really matters is a life that has been cleansed, been forgiven been washed from the inside out that only happens through the blood of Jesus Christ what did I say at the beginning Jesus gets you to think he gets you to think and that's what it is tonight I want you to think carefully I want you to leave here going where am I before Jesus because my friends what is on offer for you is the greatest life the greatest life you can ever find This life is not what it seems. And so come. Come under the blood. Trust in Jesus. Remember what Joey said last week. He is a good God. Faithful to keep his promises. That whoever will come to his son. 
will find forgiveness of sin and a new life. And that's what we proclaim. Jesus' body and his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we're in awe. <laughs> These moments are so special because, Father, they help us to see things as you see them. That is the point of your word, revelation. We're not ashamed of this gospel, Lord. It is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. And so tonight, tonight, Lord, we want to come. And I want to pray, is there anybody here who knows they are not under the blood of Christ? What I mean is that you have never run to Jesus for rescue. Do you know where the good life starts? It's being at peace with God. That's where it begins, and it's on offer to you tonight. It doesn't matter how old you are. This might be the first time you've really seen anything in Jesus. If you can see where your refuge lies, run. Run to him. Run to Christ. And I want to help you do that tonight. Would you say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm running to you. I'm running to your body and your blood. As my ransom. As my ransom payment. Would you say that to Jesus? As my ransom payment for my sin. I'm coming under your blood. I believe you're the son of God. And you died for me. Resurrect me. Give me new life. Say that to him tonight with boldness. Be bold. He loves it when you ask. Resurrect me. Give me newness of life. Help me live for you. Say that to Jesus. Help me live for you. If that's you tonight, I want to invite you to come and take hold of this cup and bread and drink and eat. If you're not quite there yet, that's okay. But let it pass by. These are for those who have come to faith in Christ. Tonight, for the rest of us, Lord, as we take this cup and we eat this bread, I pray that we would recognize this is the symbol and call that this world is not our home, that this body and blood symbolizes where we are going to go, the very presence of Jesus, that this world is not our home. I pray it would set us free to live a life full of the purpose, peace, and joy that this world longs for. Thank you for this great gift. Thank you, Lord. We're so grateful for it. We're going to pass these elements around. I'm going to ask you to hold on to it. If you're not in a place where you feel ready to take and eat of this, that's fine. You'll be respected all the more. I don't want you to be too distracted. I don't want you to be too distracted. I want you to sit and take this time and marvel at what God has given you. So let's uh, hold on to the elements and we'll drink and eat together.
Lord, I pray as we hold this cup and this bread, we'd hold it in wonder at your love for us. We were lost. No hope, Lord. Wandering in our own wisdom. And look, we got us, God, further and further away from you. And you came after us in Christ and holding this cup and bread, it reminds us of this mercy of heaven and how great that mercy is that we should partake of the Son of God. I pray, Lord, that this would never grow familiar to our hearts tonight, that we would see something and catch something of the grace of God in Jesus. And the scandalous freedom it's bought for us in a place called home. That's not this world. Jesus, you said that you've gone to prepare a place for us and you're going to call us home. And this is the proof. Your own body and blood. And so as we taste of it tonight, I pray we would be in awe and wonder at the goodness of God. Anybody here struggling with a a pricked conscience? Feeling rotten before God because of sin? Here is your peace, my friend. Drink and eat and taste the forgiveness of a father who loves you. Anybody feeling far from God tonight, this bread and cup is to remind you that as you feel Christ's symbol of his life in your hands, he's real in your heart, he's closer than a brother, he's deeper than the deepest longings of your heart, he's right there inside of you by the Spirit, he's not far, he's right with you, and this is the proof of it. Anybody here tonight wondering why on earth they are here, my friend, it's to tell the world of what you're about to taste and the scandalous, generous mercy of a God who has loved so unconditionally in Christ. This is to grow and to be shared with the world. They're to taste what you're about to taste. That's your call. To be an ambassador for Christ. So let's eat and drink together. Let's eat and drink and enjoy Jesus. Lord, I pray this taste would persist in our hearts as we leave this place. It would echo. I pray this would be a life-changing moment for many of us here. We would never be able to see life the same way again. And I pray that, Lord, we would be a people ready for home. Thank you for all that you've done tonight and being so gracious in showing us. Keep us in this word, we pray. Make it fruitful in our lives. Make us a blessing to you and those around us as we go. In Jesus' name. Amen.